a mental illness is not the end of a aviator's career necessarily. There is, there is life after diagnosis. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 71 of the Rotary Wing Show and part two of our conversation with Kevin Humphreys on aircrew mental health. It is just such an underrepresented topic in crew rooms and hangars the world over that I'm really glad we can cover it here and that Kevin is so open and willing to share his story and what he's learned on the way through. Now, there is a bit of an assumption here that you've listened to episode 70 before launching into this particular podcast. And indeed, I'd recommend that you stop and go back and do that to get the entire context if you are not yet up to speed. As the interview launches straight back into where we left off, and this time around the discussion is much more focused on the aircrew mental health side of things rather than Kev's own military career. Given the way the internet works though, and you might have landed directly on this audio, or if you're like me, I often start a a podcast in the car and it's hard to navigate back to other episodes while you're driving. So I'll cover the bare basics of Kev's career. Kev served in the Australian Army flying Blackhawks and Chinooks during the 90s and 2000s. He was a detachment commander on Blackhawks in East Timor. He deployed to Iraq on Chinooks. He was the officer commanding or the OC of the Australian Chinook squadron. And Kevin twice deployed as the detachment commander for the Australian Chinooks in Afghanistan. He went back a third time to Afghanistan to certify the next Army Aviation Group for commencement of combat operations. In the last episode, Kev speaks about an air assault mission that he flew in Afghanistan with nine other Australian Army aircrew in two Chinooks to extract Canadian Special Forces soldiers, which saw them involved in a a fierce firefight at the extraction point. It was all done on MVGs with essentially zero illumination, with RPGs being fired around the aircraft. For the last seven or so years, Kev has been flying in the civil search and rescue role and is currently a check and training captain on the AW139 type. There is a lot more in that interview, but that quickly gives you the bare bones to understand that Kev has been around the block a few times and is speaking to us with some solid experience behind him. Kevin picks up the story talking about when things started to go off the rails for him. Uh, yeah, mate, so finish up uh, now uh, in Afghanistan and um, then things, the, the wheels were starting to come off psychologically for me and um, and the, the first indication, my first panic attack was actually back in 2000 after his team, believe it or not, and um, I still don't know why to this day. All I know is that I had a completely involuntary physical response um, walking into a shopping centre to get a loaf of bread. So, so what? Is, uh, but, uh, so, talk me through that. So, was it where I don't know? Did you sit down in the corner and wait for it to pass, or did you have like break out and sweat? Like, what, what's the when people say they had a, a yeah, mate. So, so yeah. So this one was was really really fast. 
And like I say, it was my first ever one. I was walking in to get a loaf of bread. It was in that six weeks off that I had between deployments in Timor when I came home to do the um, uh, refresher course. Anyway, I was walking into a shopping centre here in Brisbane uh, to get literally a loaf of bread. And it just seemed like a whole flood of people were walking towards me. And I, I just, without any conscious thought on my behalf whatsoever, just flattened myself against a shop window. And I mean, I couldn't have made myself any more a part of that pane of glass if I tried. And I remember thinking, just kind of looking at myself going, what the hell was that? Where did that come from? What am I doing? And, and But knowing that I don't want to peel myself off the glass until all these people have walked by. And then after they had, I, I you know, peeled myself off the glass and just embarrassed, sweating, not knowing what the hell had just happened, just got in, got the loaf of bread and got out of there. And I didn't tell a soul about that, not even my wife, um, for years and years until the wheels came off well and truly uh, later on in 2008. Yeah, I, I still don't know to this day what it was. But so 2003, after coming home from uh, from Baghdad, I was you know waking in the middle of the night, screaming out, crying, "Am I normal?" Um, you know, and and my wife now knew about it. Uh, that's for sure. And and again, though, I wasn't telling any of Daddy about what was going on because. Uh, one, I was embarrassed, hugely embarrassed, and two, I believed if I put my hand up that it was going to be the end of my career. So I was, and and I didn't, I didn't understand it. So I didn't know what to say. I didn't. I was, I was too embarrassed to say that I'm crying in the middle of the night. And I was, and even if I was going to say something to somebody, I actually didn't know what to say. And that stopped me from saying anything. And that's that's one of the first lessons. Right, is that it's okay not to know what to say, just start talking, and uh, and and the words will come out or the emotions will come out, uh, and and for for the person listening to to anyone else at that time, it's also okay not to have answers because listening is far more important than having answers. But it wasn't until those until two thousand and eight that uh, that the wheels came off completely. Uh, in 2007, my second deployment to Afghanistan, I found myself, you know, continually blowing the top, angry all the time, frustrated and beyond you're belief. De- you were the detachment commander at that point, or which which position? Were you yeah, in? yeah, again, yeah. So detachment commander in 06, and then again in 07, and and it got to the point where I found myself um, talking with with a. a a female captain or lieutenant, I can't remember, and she actually couldn't look at my face. She could only look at my hands because my hands were shaking so much. They were such a distraction. And when I realised that that's what she I didn't realise my hands were shaking that much until I saw her looking at them and then I looked at them and I went, oh, my God. And so I actually put my hand up on the way out of Afghanistan in 2007 to get some help. And unfortunately, it took about three months for me to see somebody in that three months, things, you know, I was hitting the bottle uh, and whatnot, and, and, and I started to hit the bottle big time. You know, I'm talking easily a couple of bottles of wine a night or a, a bottle of Jack a night, and it didn't matter what day of the week it was, whether it was a work day or a weekend or whatever. 
And what, what was um, your frame of mind at that point? Like, were you sort of conscious that this was like going off the rails, or was it kind of you were in the moment and you you couldn't sort of see that it was not right? Correct. I, I, I couldn't. I, I I couldn't see. That I, I I could, but I couldn't. If that makes sense, I. I Maybe it was I could see, but I didn't care, and that I was at the point where I was just trying to numb uh, the pain and and the alcohol at the time. You know, it was the best way to numb the pain, but then you know, it, it's uh, it's actually about the worst way to deal with this in hindsight. But for so many people, that's the that's the first and easiest crutch that we find when we're when we're going through this and. So I eventually saw a psych about three months later, and unfortunately, that psych was probably more harm than good. You know, started to to try to work out. I went, you know, sessions with with that person for for a while, uh, and you know, I, what I didn't know at that stage was that I could actually change psychs. And it, it sounds it might sound fairly obvious to some people, but to me at the time, you know, the army had sent me to this psychologist, and therefore that was the psychologist I was going to see. It wasn't until, and I, I do believe she was joking at the time, but it wasn't until she referred to me as the excrement in the bottom of the bucket that I finally made the decision that, nah, she's not the right person for me to be talking to. That's, uh, that's some pretty good <laughs> uh, bedside manner. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so no, that was, and that was, that were literally her words. Um, so I said, you know what? I think I'll try and do this a different way. And uh, so I went back to my other solution, which was drinking more. Um, and anyway, needless to say, that wasn't doing me any favours either. And so this was all, you know, this is getting into late 2007. Managed to keep things kind of sort of on an even keel. They weren't really, but... And this is one of the things about alcohol abuse and uh, and, and high-functioning people is that they can put on a really good mask and they can hide it. And, you know, I haven't spoken to a lot of guys who I was working with at the time and, and you and I worked together, you know, a little bit around this time, I think it was, Mick. I can't remember exactly when. Yeah, well, I can chip in. So, yeah, so about early yeah, 2008 is when I moved back to, to Brisbane and basically just had a bit yep. of time to serve out before, um, you know, I left. So we pulled our, our move from Sydney up uh, in terms of getting out early. And so, yeah, I was holding mm. a desk job in operational air with us. And, and again, everything you're telling me now, and, and I guess, it, you, you know, you're a lieutenant colonel at that stage and I was captain in that, in that sort of environment. And I guess, you know, we had two ranks between us anyway. So there was a, a bit of separation culturally within the military in that regard and in the job positions. But look, everything you're telling me now, I had zero idea of, like, well, I had no idea yeah. that there was anything going on. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that was now starting to appear was um, uh, what I can only put as workplace bullying by a, uh, a senior officer to me, and um, it it became the straw that broke the camel's back. And so that said, though, I still had to go back to Afghanistan as the and, and this is one of the things with the, the military where the, the you know the medical side and the command side don't interact because of medical incompetence reasons. I can see a whole bunch of reasons why that's a good thing, but I can also see a whole bunch of reasons why that's a disaster. And so here was I still, for all intents and purposes, being seen 
through the health system by a psychologist for what was yet to be diagnosed. Nothing had actually been diagnosed at that stage. I'd had, I don't know how many sessions with the psychologists by this stage. And their recommendation was that uh, I probably shouldn't be deploying anywhere anytime soon. But because there was no diagnosis and whatnot, there was no paperwork or changes to my med status, neck status, sorry. And therefore, a deployment was coming up to Afghanistan to go back over there in early 2008 and certify the next rotary wing group. And so Kev, as the last commander, you're the man. And I was still of the opinion that if anybody found out about me having seeing psychologists and having problems, that it would be the end of my career. And and I was starting to uh, to have problems with this, this senior officer, like I was talking about, and so I was quite fearful for my career and fearful for what might happen if it was found out. And so I dutifully put my heels together and said, yes, sir, and, and went off to Afghanistan, signed up for the RWG, had my exit screening uh, with the young psychologist there on the way back out, lied my ass off about... How are you feeling? Oh, I'm beautiful. Oh, I'm great. You know, what happened over here? Oh, nothing. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and to be fair, I didn't see anything, do anything or whatever else of note being back in Afghanistan for that short two or three-week period. But, yeah, simply said what uh, I knew they wanted to hear at that stage just so that I could get the hell out of there and, and get home. And, uh, and it was only about, oh, I can't remember exactly. I remember the date that I had my breakdown, but I can't remember exactly when I got home from Afghanistan, but call it a month ish from when I got home to when the wheels came off completely and I had a, a breakdown and uh so were you on leave uh, and at this stage the like the next chapter you post no, leave no, or no 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 I was I was I was back at work and uh I actually was doing some paving around the pool that was meant to happen and get all done over the Saturday and Sunday I didn't get it all done so I decided to um to take the Monday off so that I could finish off the paving around the pool and got to the point where nothing was working for me. I was, the self-talk was telling me to hurt myself. Um, I was getting weaker. The, I was doing a worse and worse job of the paving, which was, you know, it became a self-fulfilling cycle of doom, telling, you know, the self-talk telling me how, how useless I was and that I should hurt myself and, and as I'm getting physically and physically weaker and doing a worse and worse job, and then it just yes. kept on going down and down and down until I collapsed. And I'm incredibly fortunate that at the time, two work colleagues of mine were the psychologist and the doctor from the unit from 16 Brigade. And um, and I'm also very fortunate that uh, Megan, my wife, was home and she got my phone and, and called them and they came around to the house and, and sat there for a couple of hours triaging me and, I remember very vividly two of the questions they asked me and, and one of them was, did I have a plan to kill myself? And and I answered them very honestly, no. But in my very rigid way of thinking at that time, although I absolutely knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it, I hadn't scheduled in a date and time for when I was going to do it. And so in my very rigid way of thinking... I was only thinking about it and I didn't have a plan. But, you know, from what I now know as a reasonable person's definition, I, I most certainly had a plan. 
Sure. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so there began nine months worth of sick leave, rehabilitation, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, and all the rest of it before I could get back to work. All right. So, like, what? How did that process start? Like, you know, you go, you have your first session again with a, a psychologist, but what's that next? What's that recovery process look like? <laughs> Mate, the, uh, um, a roller coaster is the is the best simplest analogy I can give you. Uh, there are there are moments when you think that you're tracking really well, and there's moments when you still want to do it all. There's there's moments when you know. So there's plenty of trips to the psychiatrist, to the psychologist, and to the um, you know, various counsellors and GPs. The first round of it was uh, me being admitted to the medical centre at, at Inogra with that uh, going through a barrage of, uh, of medical testing to rule out anything medical and physical in the first instance and then once all of that is ruled out, well if it's nothing that we can see in a scan then it must be something that you know, that is inside the melon and, uh, and something that's going on with the head or indeed with the heart but that's, that's a whole other story. And yeah, so so starts the I think twice twice a week trips to the psychiatrist, which then backs off to weekly and fortnightly, and same same with the psychologist and and whatnot down that road. And, um, and I, I guess yeah. you know in your situation, I mean, unique for this. We'll talk a bit more about aircrew stuff later on. But in terms of, of culturally, like, were you? Were people checking up on you? Like, were you, were you out on your own type thing? Like, in terms of the army and, and sort of the aviation um, body of, of an organisation, were you still within the organisation, or were you basically picked up and sort of shifted to the side? Um, I felt like I'd been discarded. So I found out later on that that a certain supervisor stated that I was avoiding my responsibilities by taking sick leave. I found out later on that I was being referred to as damaged goods by a certain supervisor and that nobody buys damaged goods. Unfortunately, uh, I, apart from, uh, apart from Martin and Jeff, uh, the, the doc and the psychologist checking up on me uh, pretty regularly, there was basic, I fell off the face of the earth is how I felt, and I'm not saying this was the reality, but I'm saying this is how I felt. I, I fell off the face of the earth as far as the rest of uh, Army Aviation went. Uh, you know, that was that was very, very tough. Now, that said, I certainly wasn't calling anybody either, and I fully respect the fact that a phone is able to both make and receive calls. I wasn't picking up the phone and, and calling anybody to to talk things through or whatever else. And, and, the, and the reason for that, mate, was, and this is no exaggeration, I, I felt I had failed my country. I felt I'd failed the army, failed my unit, failed my corps, failed my family, failed my, my wife, my kids, everything. I felt a complete and total failure and felt completely, totally ashamed of in inverted commas, allowing myself to fall in a heap. Having so, um, having talked to other people who've gone through that now, is that 
is that something common for people who have gone through that? Like I'm just thinking the the whole you know when you go through Duntroon or Kapuka, the whole army ethos and things like that, and uh, it, it almost sets you up for that. So I was wondering, yeah, if you if you've spoken with other veterans and do they have that similar sort of feeling of that they let every you know that they've sort of let everything down in that regard? Yeah, mate, absolutely, and. Uh, uh, Maybe not to the extreme of of what I felt, but but certainly up there. And uh, yeah, man, that opens up another whole line of discussion, which I won't go into now. But um, but yeah, the the, the par- paradox of pride and shame, and and I yeah, I've got some thoughts around that about why and how you know that makes the the military and and not just the military, but you know I'll broaden that out to anybody who 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 serves. And particularly those people in uniform who serve, and uh, and how being exceptionally proud makes them very very vulnerable to any form of shame. But yeah, mate, from a military perspective, how many times did you get told, "Don't you dare go jack on your mates"? And uh, and well, I see you, you know, hear you know, people are less scared of dying than they are of, of letting their, their mates down in any situation. That kind of sort of comes up in, in lots of different um, mm. you know war stories and, and things. Yeah, like that. totally. Totally. From the day you get off the bus at recruit training or officer training, you get told well and truly, don't you dare let your mates down. And, and don't get me wrong, it's it's absolutely valid for a war zone. Absolutely valid because you you have to be there for your mates. You know, it's it's the old adage that your country sends you to war, but you fight for the man or woman beside you. Uh, and it is so so true because you know that they're going to do the same for you. But when you get home into the civilian or into the real world, back into the, the, the average population, you then, yeah, you, you really suffer from, from that. And, uh, and yeah, I, I felt like I had gone jack on my mates. So, yeah, certainly wasn't telling anybody about it. And, indeed, you know, sort of jumping forward a lot here, I was so ashamed of it and I didn't know who knew that I ended up asking Megan, my wife, to keep it a secret and that I, I didn't want her to tell anybody that I'd had a breakdown. And we, we actually went about constructing our lives for the next seven years to avoid social situations, work situations, whatever else. We stopped having people around for dinner, doing this, doing that, because I I didn't want anybody who didn't know to know anything about it. And I didn't want to have to answer any questions, even innocent questions uh, about any of it. Yeah, it wasn't until 2015 through business coaching that I finally... Um, finally, got to the point of, of actually being able to accept it and uh, and talk about it publicly, and and so now uh, over the last couple of years, I've started talking about it publicly to to help to to get rid of the stigma of, of mental health and get rid of, and particularly around air crew. I know I'm sort of jumping right to the end here, mate, but you know I'm. Uh, I managed to get back flying again, got into the civilian search and rescue world, ended up as a as an instructor and an examiner, a chief pilot, director of operations, still flying operationally and MISA just just you know, was involved in some in a reasonably rescue you know, just last weekend. A mental illness is not the end of a aviator's career necessarily. There is there is life after diagnosis. And that's pretty much why I really wanted to get on, and that's going to be like the crux of of, of what we're going to talk about now is just that the highlighting that <laughs> there is there is flying life after these sorts of things. So before we dive into that more general stuff, just back on, on your story, then in terms of getting cleared to go flying again, what was what did that look like? 
at some point being medically unfit for, for flight to then getting cleared for yeah, flying again. Yeah. What was that sort of bit in between there? Yeah, so I had to go through. So I was still in the army at that stage when I, I got the – I was downed and then the clearance again. So I had to go through the, the full aircrew medical with every element in it physically. But like I say, there was nothing physically ailing me at the time, so that side wasn't an issue. I then got sent for a, a neurological assessment which was the better part of a day with a, a specialist to go through my cognitive functioning and basically a, a barrage of, of psychometric uh, and other assessments, almost like you would go through for the start, very start of your military flying career to, to assess your suitability for flight from a um, psychological uh, cognitive processing point of view. I, I went through that, yeah, got... You know, got a, a solid pass out of that. Not that they give you sort of a uh, a percentage score or anything, but at the end of that was, you know, she said you are you are good to go. So went back and then started the the back and forth of the aircrew aircrew medical you know procedure for me to get cleared to to flying. And so initially, from a military perspective, and it all ended up as a bit of a a bit of a moot point in the military because I was in a ground job at the time and I ended up leaving the army for all intents and purposes about six months or so after I got back. But so it was the initial clearance was um, 12 months as or with a co-pilot. And then after that time, assuming that everything was fine, then I would have got back to no restrictions in terms of as or with co-pilot. But like I say, it ended up being a moot point because I... Uh, because I wasn't in a flying job, but from a city perspective, the the dame at the time was the um, was was also the medical examiner. Uh, sorry, the military medical examiner, and you know I I didn't hide anything from CASA. So when I got out of the army into the in the city world, uh, I then had to go and find a, a city medical examiner. I simply naively got the first name found in the phone book who was closest to where I lived and, and went and saw that bloke and uh, that wasn't necessarily the right bloke to go and see because one of the questions on the list was um, the alcohol assessment for how many drinks you've had. It was in the days of the paper tests and the paper tests that ours had with its, you know, how many times have you had uh, so many drinks or more and my test form said three drinks. And I went, well, okay, I'm not hiding anything from from them. I'm going to, you know, I told them that I've had a breakdown, told them that I've had this and that, blah, blah, blah. And how many times, whilst I was nowhere near the level of alcohol that I had been drinking when I was abusing it prior to my breakdown, uh, I was still having more than three drinks more than a couple of nights a week. Anyway, so I wrote that in the test and then I got a letter from CASA saying that I had to go and have a whole bunch of kidney function tests and liver function tests and this and that, whatever else. And anyway, I found out that the test form should have said eight, not three. It was a misprint on the uh, on the test form. Yeah, so that was all a bit of a nightmare. I had to go and prove all that. And, and, and the reason I'm talking about this is because one of the things on the test form there as well, the medical assessment form, is um, you know the question, has anyone ever asked you but any, has anyone ever said that you should cut down on your drinking? And like I say, from a year or two earlier, yeah, absolutely. Some people had told me that a bottle of Jack Daniels a night was not a good idea. And so I was answering honestly, yes. Now that stays on my medical assessment every year. So that was 
part of the part of the assessment. So it was it was quite a battle to get through that that alcohol assessment as well as I had to go and see another psychologist and another psychiatrist and whatever else to get letters to say that I was functioning okay and that I could I could get in the cockpit. But you know, I went through all of that. And, uh, and, I, and I've done it every year since, and I, and I still to this day go and see a psychiatrist. I, I call them my ops normal calls, where I, I see a psychiatrist every three or four months and have a check-in. My GP is my aviation damey, and I'm completely open and transparent with him because you know one of the things I've learned from all of this is that doctors, psychologists, anybody who are coaches, flight instructors, they can only help you as much as you let them help you. Yep. And and if you're not telling them the whole truth about what's pertinent for that point in time, and I'm not saying you need to go and tell your flight instructor your medical history, but what I'm saying is that if, if you're holding something back and not telling the, the person that's there to help you, whether it's an instructor, a coach, a psychologist or whatever, if you're not telling the whole truth, then you're only kidding yourself and you're only wasting your own time and... and Really, you, you're just kidding yourself. So I'm completely open and transparent with my Damie and Casa is completely aware of everything that, go on, that goes on in me because ultimately I would rather be alive and healthy down here than sick in the air up there, whether that's mentally sick or physically sick or whatever the case may be. Sure, yeah. Oh, excellent. All right, we've covered a lot of ground already, but uh, let's let's – Take what I guess your story, what you've learned, and push that out for what the rest of us can can take away from that. So I'm going to run through my notes here and just get you chip in, uh, Kev, as we go through. And some of the points we've sort of covered a little bit, and and some of them will get you to, to I guess expand on it as we go through. So, yeah, sure. So yeah, look, uh, you know, I, I sort of sat down with what I knew, and you know, the podcast link and a few things you'd given me already, and try to think of my own experience going through and what I've kind of seen happen around it and yeah, mm-hmm. really the stuff I was kind of interested in. So we, we spoke a little bit about it before, but the first thing I started there with the aviation culture of the, you know, the right stuff and that military culture of, you know, the toughen up. And I guess these are like some yeah. of the barriers for people to, you know, raise their hands initially and, and start that conversation culturally in both those two organizations. And I guess if you're in military aviation, you, you're caught in the middle of, of both things. Uh, and yeah, the next point I got there was like, you know, psychi- psychologists are often seen by aircrew as the enemy uh, because they're the person, if you put your hand up and say something's wrong, I guess the thought is that immediately you're going to be grounded straight away. And so that may sort of mm. stop you raising your hand early where it's not such an issue until it actually gets to that point where <laughs> it's, you, you can't function anymore. And then I guess comparing that with uh, sports psychologists. So if you think of like anyone who goes to the Olympics, talking to psychologists all the time to get the you know, the, the very top level of performance out of them. And that's definitely not a, a an approach to psychology that I think aviation or the military has. So I don't know if you want to chip in on, on those sort of two points. Mm. No, mate, absolutely. Yeah, aviation sees psychologists as the enemy for sure. Now I know that, and, and I'm going to give uh, Martin Levy a shout out, shout out here, uh, it's something he's been talking about for a long time is, the benefit of using psychologists as a, a force multiplier for high performance teams, and and he uses sports psychology as as the example, exactly as you have raised in uh, high high performing individuals, 
high-performing teams, be they sports people, business people, whoever else. They they have coaches and uh, sports psychologists that are there to to keep them performing at the optimum level. We we just don't seem to do that. And and Martin, it's something that he has been trying to to, to put into Army Aviation for a long time now. We we really need to change our attitude towards psychologists. We need to change our attitude towards mental illness. We need to change our attitude towards uh, recovery. And now I'm not saying that we can afford to have people breaking down in tears in the cockpit because when I came back from Afghanistan, while I was in Afghanistan, when I came back from Afghanistan, I can say with all honesty and without apology that I was void of emotion. And being void of emotion is is not a positive thing for the human body by any stretch. But I tell you, it helps keep you alive on the battlefield because there, there is just no time for emotion on the battlefield. But when we're, when we're recovering afterwards and, and in normal day-to-day life, then our bodies need to be able to process emotion. That's, that's a, it's a fine balance. How do, you, how do you take someone who's still wearing the uniform and still goes to work you know, Monday to Friday and exercises and all the rest of it and he's ready to deploy? How are you able to turn that tap on and turn that tap off as required? Uh, and I don't have the answer for that, but I, I think that's conceptually a field that we need to look at a whole lot more to work out how we can do that in order to better support our people when they come home. Yeah, and the right stuff and, and the toughen up really uh, is is very, very similar. It's just seen to be that you've got to be absolutely 100% on your game at every stage. And if you're not, then you're out. And again, there, there's an element of truth to that. But the other thing as well is that we've got to realise that we're not necessarily going to stay as the top gun or the the gun pilot or the OC of the squadron or the flight lead or the whatever until we're 60 or 70 years old. That is, it is simply a chapter in our book, our book of life. And when we look at the overall book of life, then we need to work out what's important overall and know that we might have a period of time at the, at the top of our game, whatever that means for the individual, but then it's okay to also move on and have another chapter in your book and another chapter and another chapter as well. It's, it, it reminds me, it was on a different topic more about uh, CRM and sort of making decisions in the moment and weighing things up, but um, I was chatting with someone else, but you sort of have a, a longer-term, actually I think it was Parky, um, Adrian Park, we're talking about if you have to make a decision, having a longer-term view, uh, you know, is this flight going to be that important in five days and in five weeks or in five years' time? That's almost... Dovetailing what you said there, that you know, often our decision making—if we put it that over a, a longer term period—you're uh, going to make better decisions or have a bit more context rather than if you're sort of living that high pressure lifestyle at the at the time. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, mate. And there are times when you're 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 flying and you're in a mission, and you have to make decisions that are right here and now. But there are so many opportunities that arguably go by without us even noticing it that we've got the opportunity if we actually allow ourselves to acknowledge it and to take it 
that can be seen in the bigger, wider picture and, and therefore, you know, a more holistic view taken. So for sure, you know, I, I see another point there about, you know, mental health and, and mental illness being invisible. And it's absolutely true. You know, when I went back to work, I was on a return to work program. Uh, I was two days a week and I walked in and I didn't have a limp. I didn't have a cast. I didn't have a sling. Uh, what were people thinking of this this guy, this lieutenant colonel coming to work and only there two days a week? What I can say is that the paranoia was worse than the reality. And the people that cared, that bothered to ask or whatever else, they actually did care. And the people that didn't ask or didn't care, well, that's exactly right. They just didn't care. There, there actually wasn't the the snickering or, or whatever else going on behind the back for the unit that I went back into. It was it was my own paranoia. It was far worse than the reality. And but what was incredible about the return to work program for me was the boss that I had when I went back, and his name was Peter Clay, an engineer actually. I've got a lot of time for for Peter Clay. And he said to me, you know, Kev, you're on a return to work program. Uh, I need to know that, but I don't need to know why. If you want to talk about it, that's fine, but uh, I don't need to know why. I just need to know how many days a week you're here. And you need to know that you're an officer of certain rank. And whilst you're here, I'm going to ask you to perform and, and produce for me what I need at that rank. So I expect you to, to perform for those two days a week and then as you build up from there you'll you'll do more and more and 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 that alone was great for me because that's all I wanted to do I wanted to get back in and be able to get back to work but then he stopped and said one more thing he said Kev another thing you need to know about me is that I'll never give you sympathy but I'll always give you empathy and that to me was just gold. And, and for anybody listening to this that is in a, a supervisor position or, or whatever else, I didn't want to be wrapped in cotton wool. I didn't want to be singled out or, or given any sort of special treatment. I wanted to get back to work to do the job that I was meant to be able to do. And, and I sure as hell didn't want sympathy. And so, you know, empathy is, uh, is such. A, uh, such an incredible way for a, a boss to be able to show someone else that that they that they that they care and that they they're looking out for them. Again, not to do any favours, but just to understand where they're coming from. And since then, I've learned that compassion is actually the next step from empathy, because empathy, after a while, can actually be quite draining on the person offering the empathy. But compassion is empathy but with a genuine desire for the situation to get better the genuine desire for it to improve and that's actually positive and uplifting for both people for both the giver and the receiver what i would say is that for anybody out there partners peers colleagues supervisors compassion is where it's at for people that are coming back into the workplace or are in the workplace uh, and having a tough time and that pre comes into the recovery too, having that community around you because, you know, one of the other notes I've got there is that, that isolation and you've mentioned a couple of times where you felt, you know, whether it was real or not, you, you felt that isolation. But I think also mm. from, from the other side, like the other people, like there's this this idea of, of you know, the fear of infection, you know, not wanting to confront your own uh, vulnerability. So if someone 
else is going through that mental um, mental illness or, or injury, it makes it very real for other people who are around them as well. And to sort of confront that, that could be me type thing. And there, yep. I guess there's that human tendency to not want to be infected and to you know sweep it under the carpet and not want to sort of you know look look inwards. And so a lot of that isolation can sort of come from from that sort of aspect too. So I don't know if you kind of recognise that in other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is amazing that the uh, I don't know that anybody would say it overtly. But there is almost this fear of infection, exactly as you say. If you hang around the guy who's mentally unwell, that somehow you'll catch it. You know, it doesn't work like that. Now, that said, 45% of people will experience a mental illness at some stage in their life. You know, so almost one in two. I haven't got the exact stats off the top of my head, but roughly one in eight, correction, one in six women and one in eight men experience depression in their lifetime. And that doubles when we're talking about anxiety to about one in three women and one in five men experience anxiety. So, you know, this is not some random isolated thing. This is in any given work group, in any given family, statistically, someone in that family or someone in that work group, that small team of only four or five people will have a mental illness at some stage in their lifetime of either depression or anxiety, let alone any other forms of mental illness. It is everywhere in our society. And I I really believe that we as a society need to grow up and, and understand that mental illness isn't actually an illness in when we're talking about depression and anxiety and whatnot. I'm I'm now thinking about it more as a a spectrum. Just the same as you can get really physically fit and then eat too many cheeseburgers and, and cokes and get unfit. You can be mentally healthy and you can be mentally unhealthy. And that you can work with a, a physical trainer and change your diet and all the rest of it to improve your physical health. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do to improve your mental health as well. I'm, I'm absolutely firmly of the belief that mental illness is, is normal, manageable and recoverable for the vast majority of people. I, I won't say for everybody. And, and indeed, I'm never going to say, I don't believe I'm never going to say that I'm cured. Right? I, I, I don't believe that yet is something that is going to exist. But... I don't consider it a disease. I don't consider it a defect. I don't consider it a disorder. I consider it uh, an element of a spectrum of which is manageable, of which is understandable, of which is not something which will define me unless I let it. And that isn't going to happen. You know, I really believe that there is a a way for us to better handle mental health and for us to better understand mental health and to be able to get through it. Not in every single case. I know there are some, uh, are some extreme cases of, of mental illness um, of, of varying types where it is arguably to a point 
that you, you you cannot recover to live what we might in inverted brackets call inverted commas call a normal life. Uh, and I'm certainly not a medical practitioner, as you can probably work out so far. Uh, but I do, but I do believe firmly that the whole way that we thought about mental uh, illness as a community absolutely has to change, and and we need to understand that people can have had depression or anxiety or, or whatnot and feel like they are worthless, but then have them come back and still live very fulfilling lives that, that, that have a purpose and contribute to the greater whole. To bring it back into an aviation side then, and I guess, to, as you said, to, to do mental push-ups then and uh, get our fitness up, I'm, I'm looking at some of the blocks for aviators to put their hand up, and a couple of you talked about already, uh, you know, pride, ego, that feeling of, you know, vulnerability is something, you know, wrong with me, um, that loss of belonging, uh, you know, this financial thing. Like, obviously, if you, if you can't fly for many people, that's their, their yeah. income and, and the livelihood. And I've also got there right. the, we'll talk about human factors training shortly, but Maslow's little uh, triangle, you know, for, for most of us who are in, in flying, that it's at that top of that tip of that triangle of needs, that self-actualization. When people ask you, you know, what do you do? You say, I'm a, I'm a pilot, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm air crew. And that's kind of, that's your, not so much personality, that's, that's kind of like who you are, who you see yourself being. And so to put your hand mm. up and say, hey, I'm you know, worried about mental health or I've got stuff going on or I'm not coping so well, there's, there's like a lot of resistance for aircrew to go and do that. Can you give us some mindsets or approaches or how you sort of recommend people overcome that? Yeah, mate, it's a, it's a big, big topic. I'm by no means the, a master at this, but I'm certainly learning as I go. And the, the number one thing that I've learned so far uh, and you, you touched on it there, is that for so many of us that are aircrew, for so many of us that are military, or for so many of us that are that, that wear a uniform, and particularly, doubly so for men, we find our purpose in what we do and the uniform that we wear. And you're right, you know, we'll say I'm a pilot or I'm a loadmaster or I'm a, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And... And I believe it is a massive problem in the world where we, you know, we get caught up worrying about our perception of someone else's perception of us. And that then magnifies the belief that who we are is determined by what we do instead of realising that what we do is nothing more than a reflection of who we are. And I know that's only a subtle difference between the two but but one is the realization and the belief that we as the individual are already complete and not from an arrogant perspective but but just from a perspective of knowing that we are who we are and then we happen to put on a uniform or we happen to go flying or we happen to do whatever the job is but for so many of us, and, and I was included in this, we have this belief that what we do is the sum total of who we are. And, and I do believe that that's one of the reasons why so many, so many veterans, so many guys in defence fight it hard when they get out of the army and take the uniform off. And indeed, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing in the emergency services area as well. People have been, you know, career firefighters or rambos or coppers or, or whatever else 
uh, and they take off the uniform and all of a sudden it's as though someone took a piece of them out of them. It's, it's as though they're a whole different person and they no longer have purpose and they feel that they no longer have any worth. It's, it's because their worth was wrapped up in the uniform and the job title rather than the job title simply being something that that human being did. So hopefully that makes sense, mate. As I say, it's a, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's a significant one. So when you're, so you're in that seat then, and you're a you're a tour, a tour pilot flying to all rigs or things like that, and you're worried you've got that problem. And I guess for a lot of us, that initial problem that will be if I I don't want to jeopardise my ability to fly um, or my career. What's the what's the sort of antidote thought to be having at that point? Yeah, the, you know, it's actually along the lines of what we were talking about before that you were saying, Parky said, will this flight matter in five days' time or, or this decision matter in five days' time or, or, or five weeks or five years' time? And the, the simple answer there is that the earlier you get treatment, the better, more effective and longer-lasting that recovery is going to be. The longer you leave yourself festering and worrying and being anxious or depressed or covering it up, the deeper it's processed into you and the deeper the problems are processed into you. And therefore, the longer it takes for it to be sorted out, either through a psychologist or a coach or, or whatever the case may be. And, and again, you know, the really simple analogy is to, to look at it from a physical perspective. You know, I spoke about having cheeseburgers and, and Cokes. You, you're reasonably fit and healthy, and then you start down the road of, of eating too many cheeseburgers and, and having too many Cokes. Well, you know, if you do that for a day and then stop uh, and realise that you need to go back to the gym, then, or, you know, start drinking water instead of Coke or whatever the case may be, it's not going to have that big an impact, right? But if you let it go on for weeks or months or years eating cheeseburgers and drinking Cokes instead of going to the gym, having water and eating properly, you're going to get pretty fat and it's, going to, and it's not going to be one week at the gym or a couple of sessions at the gym to work off a year's worth of cheeseburgers and Cokes. And it, it's really that same kind of analogy when it comes to us dealing with our mental health is that the, the sooner you nip it in the pub and you talk to someone about it, the easier, the sooner the recovery is going to be. For me, I, I fell in a heap in 2008, but 2000 was my first panic attack of any kind. Uh, 2003 was my first night terrors, night sweats, PTSD symptoms. And so I had eight years worth of mental illness being anxiety, I had five years' worth of PTSD before I got to the point of falling in a heap. And so for me, it was nine months before I got myself back to work. There's a couple of people that I know in the civilian industry in the last 12 months or so who are pilots, are flying, who, who realise they're at the point that one of them through his own means of saying, no, nah, I, I know I've been struggling a little bit for a while and I need to put my hand up. 
and another bloke who knew he'd been struggling but was shit scared of putting his hand up and so really didn't want to but ended up putting his hand up after uh, myself and another fellow had a chat to him. And they both put their hands up and went and saw the specialists, went and saw the dami, were grounded, went and saw the specialists and then got themselves back to work roughly four weeks or so later. And both of them to this day are both travelling pretty well. I don't keep close tabs on them, but uh, I do keep semi-regular tabs and, and they're both travelling pretty well from what I can see. So so there's an example. Yeah, sorry, you go. I was going to say, it's a bit of a, a leading question, but it, you know, I guess it's a thought people have. Purely by going and seeing a, a psychologist, that's like that's not an instantaneous grounding, is it? You know, I I should know the CASA rules on this and I, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't. Uh, oh, the short answer is no. I'm always saying, yeah, yeah, the, the absolutely, sh- absolutely not, because, I mean, yeah. you know, you yeah. can't see a psychologist the, the, for all the, kinds the, of things. Yeah, that's exactly right, mate. So, so sorry, I, I, I already put two and two together and got five there by saying <laughs> you went right. to a psychologist because of a mental illness issue. But, yes, you don't see a psychologist for a raft of different things. So, no, just going to see a psychologist is no. You don't have to. You're not going to get grounded because of that. Going to see a psychologist because of a a concern over mental illness, I would say no. And, and you need to confirm the rules with CASA here. There's the disclaimer. Go and, check. And, and I've got to say, they actually have got a pretty good section on the, the CASA website that has a, a fact sheet and various other things about mental illness. And I did read it 12 months ago when I was looking at it with these, these couple of fellows. But the short answer is CASA knows that mental illness is normal. Right? It might sound like an oxymoron, but... CASA knows mental illness is normal, okay, as in they know that it's very common and they know that it is unique for every individual. And they, I've got to say, Dr. Michael Drain, the, the head of CASA Aviation, uh, I've, I've spoken with him a few times. I'm a welfare rep with the Australian Federation of Air Pilots and I've sp- and worked with them on their HIMSS program, which is their alcohol and substance abuse and addiction program. And I've spoken with Michael Drain a few times about that. And there are, there are clear parallels between addiction and, and mental illness as well, I've got to say. CASA, from what I, from conversations I've had with them, CASA want, really, really want people to put their hand up and say they need help so that they can make sure that we've got healthy people in the cockpits. And that doesn't mean they're going to kick you out as soon as you put your hand up. That means they'd prefer to see you getting treatment and in the cockpit than in the cockpit without getting treatment. I really encourage people to put their hands up early to go and get help with their GP and with a psychologist. And like I say, the two examples that I know of is that they, they put their hand up, went to the GP, and they were back flying again four weeks later. Yes, they had to be grounded for that short period, but you know about four weeks later, they were, they were back in the cockpit and then back in the air again. And, and the thing is that you can get back in the air again with you know, their example, back in the air again four weeks later and continue on with their career versus hiding it and it will end up impacting you, your, your whole body, right? There's clear evidence now of the physiological effects of mental illness on the physical body and it's, it's really not pretty. And so it will end up affecting you physically 
And if it gets to the point where you've been hiding it for so long and eventually you have a breakdown and then you have to have nine months off work or whatever the case may be, that may then jeopardise your career in the longer term. My two cents worth, get help early, is definitely the answer. I did a little bit of research before with this and, and just looked at what CASA has. Uh, I didn't actually find, I didn't actually go looking for that section you were talking about, but just looked at the, the manual of standards in terms of uh, theory knowledge that pilots in Australia mm-hmm. would go through. And I guess it'd be pretty similar for the FAA in, in, in Europe as well. So in the, uh, uh, the human factors, the commercial uh, syllabus, it, it's a whole section, you know, obviously we talk about you know, vision, illusion, sleep, blood donations, ergonomics, crew cohort, there's a whole section there about hypoxia, uh, drugs and alcohol, and kind of the nearest we get to some of this stuff is the, the sort of um, stress curve that people normally, you're at low levels of arousal and then you get to the middle where the curve comes up mm. and you're operating at a, you know, a, an optimum level of arousal and as stress increases, you start going down the other side and performance drops off. But then, yep. then there's the, the one line that says emotional. It says emotional hyphen, anxiety, depression, and fear. But nowhere in the human factors syllabus for a CPL does it talk anything about mental health other than just talking about those dot points there, anxiety, depression, and fear. It doesn't go any deeper than that. And then the ATPL syllabus, it's, it's basically has stress and anxiety, which it spreads into a, a couple more bullet points. But, yeah, it's just interesting. We spend you know, a, a huge chunk of that theory on the physiological aspects, hypoxia and fatigue and things. But uh, not that any of us wants more content in the in the theory, but it's no, it's, that's right. yeah. it's definitely pretty light on in in terms of mental health side of things. Oh, mate, absolutely. You know, I I did my ATPL what nine years or so ago now, so I, I can't remember what you know can't remember what was in the syllabus. But yeah, from everything you've got there, it is very very light on, and and I think is is somewhat reflective of the broader society that mental illness really is only just starting to hit its straps as being something that is now being talked about a little bit more mainstream. There's still clearly a very heavy stigma around it, uh, but it is improving. I'm, I, I am absolutely sure that it is improving in terms of the stigma is being addressed. But, yeah, it, clearly those two syllabus have a, a fair way to go in terms of educating people around the what you need to be aware of in order to identify any sorts of problems arising in either in yourself or in other people and it's I do liken it to fatigue in some ways and that is that the fatigued person is often the person least likely to see that he is fatigued certainly for someone who is having a tough time with anxiety or depression then is often also the case that other people will pick up on it first. Now, that said, and I know I've said this before, that we put on a mask, and so it is pretty easy to, to put a mask on, but there's there's times when you when you will see it, and it's similar to fatigue. When someone in the cockpit snaps, you know, and they, they get quite snappy with their responses, quite short with their responses when they're tired. And it's the same kind of thing in some ways with anxiety and depression. When somebody is actually depressed, not in their normal state, but getting pushed a little bit or anxious or whatnot, then they'll, they'll, they may well start doing or saying things that isn't quite in character for them. 
Uh, and, and other people will probably pick up on it, even though that person may not. Uh, and that's where people, work colleagues and the like, need to be courageous enough to have the conversation with the individuals just to say, mate, is everything all right? And, and yep, the person going through the tough time may well put up a mask and say, yep, yep, everything's fine. But it doesn't stop you from at least asking the question in the first place. And that's jumping ahead there, but while you've mentioned that, like it's – you almost need a you know, script. You know, we we have so many, especially in, in two crew cockpits and, and, and with loadmasters and things like that in the back, you've got set kind of phrases that you use all the time that have a set meaning and you sort of, you know, get trained and everyone recognises the same thing. Uh, is there, like, what do you recommend? If you're the person who's, you know, feeling pretty anxious or you're feeling like you, you want to reach out and get help or if you're the other person who wants to open that conversation with someone else at work, is there a really easy, like you just mentioned, hey, you're okay type thing, and there's a the whole, that sort of campaign in Australia. I don't know. What do you tell people to, to say in terms of making it super easy for that first conversation? Yeah, mate. Uh, you know, the, the are you okay is really a great icebreaker, and it is getting far, far more well-known in Australia, the are you okay. And, you know, I don't have a, I, I'd love, say that I had a one-liner that was the the icebreaker that would get someone to talk. Fortunately, I don't. I don't know anyone else who does yet. But are you okay uh, is certainly there. And then from there, it's, it's just getting in regular contact with people and finding the person that you gel with because it's the, the person who you, you're with day to day. And, and for me, and I'm, I'm not making excuses or anything else here, I, you know, and this is one of the things with the Army where we bounce from unit to unit. And so you can be with a unit for a couple of years but then bounce out to the next unit for the next couple of years. Or you can even be in the one unit but switch around between subunits and whatever else time and time again. So it's, it's kind of easy in some ways there to to hide or, or put up a mask. But finding someone that you, you really gel with as a, as a mate, as a friend, in a, or in particularly in a team, to look out for you, then that's definitely the way to go. In the helicopter industry, and I guess like military obviously has its own you know, stresses and definitely you know, going into, into a war zone and things like that is, is incredible stresses that a lot of people are lucky not to ever have to do. But you've got, you know, depending on when people are listening, but this is towards the end of, of 2018, you know, there's force redundancies um, out there. There's, you know, people doing on, on touring work. There's people who have got a fair yeah. few helicopter qualifications who don't even get uh, callbacks on interviews. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum. You've got people who are, are trying to get it, you know, their foot in the door and start a helicopter career and trying to find that first job and the pressures that go with that. So it's definitely especially at the moment, an industry with a lot of its own stresses well above, you know, the actual flying stress is purely trying to get work and, and hold work. So there's going to be people out in the pilot population and the aircrew population who are going to have heaps of life stress. So I used to, I think other people laugh as well, I'm sure you've done the, the same little survey question in CRM courses where you go down and, and tick off the things, you know, have you had a fight with your partner in the last week uh, and all these other sort of life stresses mm-hmm. and you get a score at the end of it and if it's over 100, it says, you know, you, you're stressed and, and pretty much, you know, yep. 90% of the people in the room score <laughs> in, in, in the stress section. Life is full of stress these days, you know, and, and add to that list 
teenage children and online gaming and ev- everything cyber. So, um, so there's a there's a bunch of stresses in there, mate, and it is absolutely challenging. And you know, the financial side of that absolutely is a dimension that cannot be underestimated for well, for, for any human being, but you know, for aircrew in particular. I know, I know a, a lot of guys say might be qualified to drive around a 737, but if I can't do that, then I actually don't have many skills for anything else in life. And it's it's funny when your pilot seem to be one of the most trusted professions, but I know there's a bunch of guys out there, whether they fly 139s or 737s or, or uh, 44s or caravans, that they're highly skilled in their job, but if they're not doing that job, then they're actually not so skilled to do pretty much anything else. And so, you know, continuing to, to put food on the table is absolutely a, a stressful situation for them. And the the only thing I can say there is that wealth, and I know I'm stretching out finances here, day-to-day finances out to wealth, but wealth is useless if your health is not intact. And so, again, it's a, a point of realising that at, at what point, and I'm not saying you can have this rational sort of discussion with yourself when you're ill, but for for what it's worth, conceptually you need to, and, and this is a conversation you can have with colleagues or whatever else, what price do I put on my health if if I'm unwell? And there are other things that you can put in place like you know income protection insurance and loss and license insurance and all those sorts of things I, I have no connections with any insurance companies and uh, I, I don't exactly like many of their policies and practices but you have to ask yourself if it's, if it's a necessary evil for you to have to have a safety net there just in case things don't work out with you with your health or with job prospects or whatever the case may be Kev, look, it's a, as you said, you know, it's a huge subject and, and one that's pretty difficult for most people to talk to. So to be able to have, you know, someone with your flying background and military background as a separate sort of side of that, to be able to talk through your experience and, you know, I, I guess they talk about different types of bravery as well, but, you know, it obviously takes a certain amount of courage to, to get help and then be able to talk about it. Yeah, look, thank you so much. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things before we, we round up, but yeah, so it's a really good avenue and to be able to have this aviation specific on mental health is hopefully a great resource for people. Mate, uh, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm really um, humbled that you asked me to be on the show, mate. Hopefully you know, all the listeners can get something out of what I've said, whether it's around mental health or, or the combat operations or, or whatnot. And there, there really is life after diagnosis and particularly in the aviation world, there absolutely is I say I know some pilots who have put their hand up and got help. I know crewmen who have put their hands up and got help uh, and uh, are still flying today and doing cracking jobs and really, really working at the top of their game. So I know it's hard to see that when you're in the depths of it, but there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I might get you to have a thing about resources that people can uh, go and and look at for more information or if you know people need help. But I'll just throw in, uh, you know, touching on the suicide type thing and another aspect of the, the mental health is, and we've talked about the Jocko podcast on here before, and I, I can't remember what number the the actual episode is, but there's one there with uh, Dakota Myers uh, with Jocko talking. Dakota is a, a US Medal of Honor winner from, from Afghanistan, or I shouldn't say winner, awardee from, yeah. uh, again, a, a firefight in Afghanistan. 
and that interview is just amazing. Like again, you know, the firefight and, and all the, the operations he went on, the guy, you know, essentially bulletproof, like just absolutely amazing to then where he gets to the point and, and obviously goes all the way down to the point where uh, if someone hadn't actually unloaded his pistol when he was back in, in America after he'd been on deployment, he would have killed himself. And that story yeah. is amazing too. And it sort of just really hits home that for someone like that who can be affected, then who are, the rest of us are, <laughs> are very, very vulnerable. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But absolutely. And um, the, the bottom line with, with mental illness is that it does not discriminate. It, it, whether you are, it doesn't matter your gender, your race, your age, your socioeconomic status, your income, your education level, none of that matters when it comes to, to mental health. I, I, know, I know the suicide rate in uh, doctors is actually quite high. Uh, I know lawyers who suffer from depression. I know, um, you know, just about any trade, professional group, whatever you want to call it, there are people in every aspect of life that suffer from varying forms of mental illness and also people in, in every one of those aspects who have gone on to live very prosperous lives. Yeah, none of us are immune. Whilst we have a head and a heart, sorry, whilst we have a brain and a blood supply, we are susceptible to, to mental illness. It's as simple as that. Resources, Kev, that you want to direct people to? There's, there's actually so many out there now. Uh, well, I say CASA does have a good fact sheet on, uh, on mental illness, so that's definitely one for, for air crew to look at. Beyond Blue, I'm actually a volunteer speaker for Beyond Blue now to, to tell my story and, and try to, to spread more of the message that way. They have a wealth of resources on their website and it is, is targeted. You can go to, to separate sites for, for youth, men, women, so, so they have specific resources across the board for a whole bunch of, of different people there. Mates for Mates for Veterans has a wealth of resources as well as psychologists in-house to, uh, to get help. You know, the, there's the, the Black Dog Institute also does great work around depression. The Glippoli Medical Research Foundation and the Phoenix Institute. Phoenix Institute, I think, is based in Adelaide or Melbourne, can't remember which one. Gallipoli Medical Research Foundation is based in Brisbane. Both of those are, as the name suggests, research establishments looking at mental illness and specifically PTSD in the veteran community, but also in the broader community as well. So they've got some some fantastic reports and, and research studies and whatnot that, that they're doing and well worth a look for anybody who wants more information there. Now, for larger organisations, I know you went and I think you spoke to uh, Toll possibly, but are you available to go and talk to organisations? How does that, that sort of thing work? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I've done a, a few presentations now. I was at Boeing yesterday, the Australian Tax Office, the day before that. I went down and spoke at Toll with the, the kick-off of their peer support program. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, mate. I'm, um, hopefully you can tell... From listening to me here, that I'm pretty passionate about wanting to get. Whilst I was so ashamed of it for so long, I'm now at the point where I'm absolutely passionate about normalising the conversation around mental illness and and trying to get some of the facts out there rather than the um, the misnomers and the fear. All right, well, I'll grab a bunch of links off here and get some photos of two of your time in Afghanistan and things like that to put up on the blog post that goes along with this, so that people can go and 
and check out. But Kev, I mean, you know, we'll wind this up shortly, but uh, what, a, what a way to spend about the last two and a half hours learning about all this stuff. So thank you so much for you know, sharing your time and being willing to, to, to chat and especially put the, the air crew side of it on the uh, mental health. Mate, my uh, my absolute pleasure, and mate, for what it's worth, you, you've got a bit of a scoop there. There's some stuff I've spoken about there that I actually haven't spoken about at all, ever. Folks, that has been Kevin Humphreys taking you through some pretty big highs in the, the first episode, and then today some pretty big lows and some very painful experiences for him as he battled through with the, the symptoms of his mental illness for a period of years. A couple of points I've pulled out from my notes today that might be worth summarising. Kev points out that it's important to talk about mental health, even if you don't know how or the words to to use to get started. Just the act of talking about how you are feeling with someone starts that recovery process. Kev's cheeseburger and coke analogy, you know, comparing mental health to to physical fitness is an easy way to remember and visualise the whole concept. It's a sliding scale. If you encounter a mental health episode, it's not necessarily going to be a flying career ending prospect with proper intervention and support. It's going to be just like any other medical issue. Statistically, most of us are going to deal with periods of mental illness, either ourselves with close friends and family at some time in our life, that it can afflict anyone. There's no necessarily shame or guilt or personal failing attached to it. It's just almost a function of living in a a homo sapien body with an organ called a brain. And it's probably actually amazing that our brain works as well as it does most of the time. And lastly, the longer you ignore or suppress it, the more you'll have to work through when it finally does catch up with you. And Kev's story especially, and I'm sure there are many more like his, you just wouldn't want to have to go through those years of mental anguish, the perceived isolation and the pain, if you knew it was normal just to talk to someone early and that it's something that so many other people are going through or have gone through. If there was a part of Kev's story that really resonated with you or if you wanted to provide some feedback or be part of the conversation around this episode in particular, then, yeah, jump on the blog post comments for episode 71 at rotarywingshow.com. I'm sure I can get Kev in there to answer any questions that you've got. On the website, there's also a, a video of Kev talking about the uh, air assault uh, mission and different photos that Kev has sent me in both posts for episodes 70 and 71. Both blog posts also have links to resources on mental health for ex-military members as well as for anyone in the civil world and to the CASA information on mental health. These are Australian-based in most cases, so please feel free to leave blog comments pointing to similar services in your country. If you have a larger company or a gathering of people that you would like Kev to speak to, no promises, but it may be an option and I can help put you in contact with him or you can run a search on LinkedIn for Kevin Humphreys and connect with him there. In the last episode, I asked at the end for your topic ideas, questions or helicopter trivia that can be turned into short one to two minute videos on YouTube. If you have any of those, send them through. I'd love to get them. You can send them through on Rotary, or sorry, to email address at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Thank you to the show's current supporters on patreon.com. So Heath, Daniel, Peter, Jason, Tony, Rindell, Kev, Mike, and Mick. 
And I should probably throw in a thanks there for my wife too for funding the show. She just doesn't uh, realize that she's doing it. But hey, if you're interested in throwing a dollar every so often into the pot for bandwidth fees and other costs, then you can do that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. It would be very appreciated. So thank you in advance if you do go ahead and do that. On behalf of Kevin Humphreys, and definitely speaking for myself, thanks for joining us on the last two episodes. I hope we've been able to help normalize the conversation around mental health a little for, for you and the others in the community that are listening along too. There might be someone that you know that would get value from having the episodes shared with them.